Okay. Welcome to Rational-ish. This is the first time I've said that intro. Usually Morgan says it. And I realize how hard uh, our podcast is uh, to pronounce. So sorry for you listeners who have to pronounce it every once in a while. But today's a very special episode because I've got my brother Oliver uh, co-hosting today. And it's my genuine pleasure to uh, welcome him on the pod. Uh, thanks. Pleasure's all mine. Long time listener, first time caller. Yeah. Going all the way back to the uh, the common era days. Uh, people like this. Uh, they like this podcast. They should check out that because those were lit as AF. <laughs> I love, man, that's a deep poll. So uh, Oliver's referencing a podcast I did with my dear friend Coleman Adams where we'd review Netflix movies. And it was called The Common Era Podcast. And uh, it, it could say that that was a, that was a warm up for this one. Um, we did 25 episodes of that. So yeah, if you're you, really bored, I don't sometime. remember. Did you do any uh, any Tarantino one? I believe we did Pulp Fiction. Oh, nice. Um, but other than that, oh, I think we did Inglorious Bastards too. But really, uh, yeah, I'll have to I'll have to go back and see. Yeah, that was a great kind of segue into what we're going to be talking about today, which is we both saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Quentin Tarantino's ninth feature film uh, this weekend. And I went to a crisp 10 a.m. matinee. You saw it on a Friday night at 630 like a normal person. And so I'm yeah, I'm looking forward. To, I've been wanting to talk about this with someone and I don't really roll in a friend circle that is that into movies. So I'm glad I have people like you and my friend JJ to kind of, to, I don't know, decompress uh, this with. So what are your just kind of initial thoughts of the movie? Uh, first thoughts, maybe you should get different friends. <laughs> thoughts. Okay. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, I mean, you know, the movie's like basically for me, or at least that's how I feel. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, I was so pumped when I found out a year ago when I found out like what was happening, kind of what it was sort of about, who was going to be in it, and just they started ticking off the names. They're like, "Okay, we got Pitt, we got DiCaprio, we got Timothy Oliphant's going to be in it, we got Pacino, we got." I'm like, "Okay." So at my office, uh, I have a little whiteboard by my desk, and I just wrote down big letters the the supposed date of the uh, original premiere. However. Um, Unfortunately, I don't know who decided to do this, but the original uh, date was set to be on the 50th anniversary of the Mansa, the, the Tate murders. Right. So it was a it was a little problematic. I'm glad that they changed that date. They ended up going a, a little bit earlier. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is this is the most summer movie I've seen for. I can't since I can't remember when like there's not a single cloud in the sky in any of the shots of this movie, you know, oh, and just, just downtown. Just wait for Top Gun Maverick next year. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that oof, that's a whole nother thing. But um, yeah. So why do you think this was made specifically for you? Is this a time period that you're 
uh, particularly interested in or old Hollywood? Is that a particular interest of you or Tarantino or Leo or Brad Pitt or what was it? I mean, it's all the above. You got Tarantino. Uh, I forget who said it. Somebody I was reading somewhere. They're like, you know, Tarantino, he might not be my favorite director, this or that, the other. The guy was clearly a fan of his. But at the end of the day, like, his films are an event, unlike, I think, pretty much any other director. You know, he's famously said that he's only going to do 10 films. Yeah. So just the, uh, just each time one comes out, it's amazing. But, I mean, I don't know. I, I think you you just put all that, you put the history in there. You, uh, well, history as he sees it, uh, you know, did you, uh, did you tell everyone that we're going to be spoiling this thing? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. We're, it wouldn't be fun to talk about this on a podcast and avoid spoilers. So this is definitely a spoiler heavy podcast <laughs> for those who haven't seen the movie and don't want it spoiled. Yeah, everybody needs to just stop listening right now. Go watch it and then come back and listen. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you touched on um, the 10 film thing. Do you believe that? Oh, no, absolutely not. I don't, th- I don't believe it. I can't <laughs> imagine anyone wonder. believes it already come back and said uh one interview he's he's calling a kill bill volume one and two he's not counting as two films against his 10 oh he's doing it oh 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 (laughs) those don't count for some reason yeah they don't count they count as one uh not two and then um and then there's all this talk about him it came out that he's thinking about doing a star trek movie uh no one wants that or series well i don't know if anyone wants it or not but he said like uh he basically said well that's not going to count either we're like, okay, so what, what are we doing here? <laughs> I, oh gosh, I don't get it. Um, especially because he's often termed as like a director's director. His uh, encyclopedic knowledge of movie history and all the interviews I've watched, you know, to kind of prepare for this, uh, they, they only did, they had a pretty small press junket. I think they only did kind of a few interviews. And, um, Tarantino's just constantly name dropping directors of the era and actors of the era. And some of which are kind of featured in the movie and not a single one do I know or recognize. And I can't imagine Margot Robbie sitting next to him knowing who he's talking about either. And so it's just very evident how much he loves movie making. So to give it up arbitrarily because you've hit a round number seems bizarre to me, but you know, whatever, (laughs) however you want to live your life, Quentin. He has, a, he has a lot of thoughts on a lot of different subjects that don't uh, really make any sense or uh, seem very uh, realistic. But, you know, he's he's our guy, so we're just going to roll with him. Yeah. No, I think um, so we'll give a quick kind of uh, synopsis of the plot for those who maybe haven't seen a trailer or something. Basically, uh, Leo DiCaprio plays Rick Dalton. He is a... Um, He's not necessarily a struggling actor. He's more of uh, trying to, you know, trying to make the transition from TV to movies or, you know, from to going from a has been kind of TV star to the next like era of Hollywood, as it were. And his stuntman is played by Brad Pitt, um, who's kind of out of work as long as Leo's out of work. And so uh, he'll just kind of do odd jobs around the house and st- and drive him around because Leo got too many DUIs to uh, retain his license. And so the movie just kind of follows them as they hang out uh, and, you know, go to uh, different 
gigs at different shows that Leo's featured on. And then Brad Pitt will pick him up at the end of the day and they'll go drinking. And in the meantime, Brad Pitt will have his own kind of little vignettes of adventures. And he meets somebody who's part of the kind of Charlie Manson family. And that, uh, you know, eventually leads to the climax of the movie. But in how Tarantino's talked about the movie and how clearly it is uh, to the audience at the end of the movie. It's just a, it's just hanging out. It's just a, it's just a jam session. It's hanging out with these people who are really fun to hang out with. And there's not the plots kind of beside the point. Was that your impression as well? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, you got to mention, of course, that, uh, you know, Rick Dalton is uh, living next door to Sharon Tate. Yeah. I think that to me, came across as beside the point too, but we can talk about that, but continue. Well, uh, it's the whole, well, yeah, no, I mean, we're hanging out with, uh, hanging out with them. It's, it's a great, it's a great bro movie. Uh, you yeah. know, you just see how their relationship is and you know, how they get along and stuff. And it's a, it's a fun ride. And then we, like you were talking about his vignettes, then we go off and, uh, do our own separate, like parallel storyline for Sharon. Sharon's, uh, we get to hang out with her. She gets to go uh, pop in and do a little matinee like yourself on uh, one of her films. Uh, which one was that again? It was that. It was the Dean one with Martin Dean film. Martin, like Mess yeah. Crew or something. Yeah, the Wrecking Crew. Wrecking Crew. Uh, can I t- can I talk about that for a quick second? Oh, please do. <laughs> okay, so the scene as Oliver's describing, she comes up to the to the window and she sees her. I think she sees her name on the marquee as well under Dean Martin. And, and so she's like kind of um, just has one of those moments that I'm sure every young actor who's made it has where they're like, wow, my name's kind of where I used to see all these other stars names and whatever. And so she's kind of struck by that and goes um, and decides to, to go to uh, see if she can get into the movie because she's in the movie. So she goes up to the teller and just says, as she's asked for a ticket and 75 cents. And she's like, actually like I'm in the movie. Could I just kind of go in and, and broaches that. And, uh, for me, I thought that that was kind of played to be, uh, kind of like a parody of Hollywood type people and kind of a, kind of a commentary on just the vanity of Hollywood and that kind of thing. That's what struck me as I was watching it. And then as she goes in and she's let in because she's in the movie and can prove that she is or whatever. And she watches the entire movie and she's kind of mining different parts that she trained as she's watching herself do it on, on the screen in the scene. And I thought that this was such a kind of, we're supposed to be laughing at her. Like this is such a vain thing to do. <laughs> so that was as, as I was watching it as an audience member, that was my impression. And then I saw an interview with, uh, I think entertainment tonight, and the interviewer asked, oh, that scene with Sharon Tate um, asking if she can be let into the movie because she's in it. Uh, haven't you, have you ever done that? And he has Margot Robbie and Leo DiCaprio and, and Brad Pitt and Tarantino in the room. And I'm like, this interviewer is so dumb for asking that question. Like, like any of these people would have. And then everyone's face is like, no, of course not. And then Tarantino's like, I've done that. <laughs> And he's, he did it on a date. And so he tells the story about how he was on a date. He was in line to see True Romance. And then he's like, well, you know, I wrote this movie. I wonder if I can 
get in for and then he has this whole like five minute conversation with the teller about like well yeah i wrote this movie and i can prove it because my i have my driver's license and my name's right there on the movie and then other people who had seen reservoir dogs were coming getting autographs and stuff and i'm just like only tarantino the most like megalomaniac (laughs) person ever so that scene to me i was like oh that's actually they're like playing that straight like a celebration of sharon tate's kind of stardom and oh what a wonderful sincere thing and i was like taken aback by that kind of i i think that's what he was selling it as because when i saw that i was like okay why would anybody do this and as the scene kind of went on and you know she's mimicking like you said her her karate moves that her character is performing on the screen she's doing it sitting there and stuff i think i think we're supposed to really take that away as like oh i think we're supposed to be charmed by it i think we're the whole, not just that, like the whole thing that, like you were saying, that uh, trying to get in for free because it was her, it was like a, it, they were playing it very innocently. And at the end of the day, I think you're right. It's like, okay, come on, a little <laughs> bit, but I don't think, I think that's how it is. You know, if you want to get into the megalomania, uh, I was shocked, shocked that he was, uh, he was not in the film at all. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I haven't been around the, I've purposely like, stayed away from reading reviews and stuff but mm. you know uh, I'm sure it'll come out that he was like the fourth extra in the scene you can see him like way in the background if you're really looking for him but you know as everyone knows and I think he's had a significant part in most of his movies or at least his early ones um, and then recently he's been you know popping up here and there like uh, that ridiculous uh, Australian character he played in Django and stuff. So. I was going to ask you what your least favorite, uh, they're all bad, but what your least favorite of them was, because that would be mine, his his cameo in Django where he's an Australian like slave trader guy. Oh, yeah, by far. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, at least he's not actively trying to ruin the movie, but it, it's very distracting and there's there's absolutely no point to it whatsoever and he has like he has more than two lines i mean it's not like a throwaway character yeah you gotta think that there's a deleted scene for once upon a time in hollywood uh when they're at the playboy mansion and there's some you know accomplished swarthy director giving some lecture to you know sharon tate or someone or emil hirsch's character and that that's played by tarantino (laughs) oh better yet he should have just played that teller that was uh Oh, that would have been that would have been all time. Um, okay, so yeah, sorry, we were talking about just uh, just what just what you dug about the movie and how. Oh, you because you were saying there's also this parallel Sharon Tate narrative that is kind of is adjacent to the Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt one. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's not as strong, you know, but we do we get more than a, a few scenes of her just like her life like what her life's like she's not really interacting a ton with people she's mostly dancing she's mostly listening to records in her house and then she's dancing or she's you know just kind of out about and uh it it really seemed like especially when you get to the end and you see how it goes because i I think what he was doing on purpose was really just setting this up for like oh look at this sweet girl she's just you know she's just loving life and she's innocent everything and then obviously uh, we're all thinking like okay this isn't going to turn out well for her and then obviously 
at the end of it when, well, I don't know what to get into, but it was clear that this just became basically like a fairy tale, the way he kind of set it up. Yeah. So I think the final scene where, so, you know, we'll talk about the kind of climactic fight scene in a bit, but basically they have this climactic fight scene. Everyone's kind of shook. And then Leo goes next door and Emil Hirsch, who's, who's kind of Sharon Tate's extramarital lover, uh, comes out and he's like, Hey man, you okay? And introduces himself. And then Sharon Tate comes over the intercom because they're standing in the driveway and invites him up for a drink. And then the kind of the there's like a crane shot of Leo meeting Sharon Tate for the first time. And she's in a long T-shirt pajama type thing over her pregnant belly and had just invited him for a drink at 3 a.m., you know, (laughs) and. I also initially thought that that was kind of supposed to be this kind of these like vain Hollywood people who and then I was thinking more about it and hearing everyone talk about it. And that's supposed to be this depiction of how Sharon Tate was such an open hearted, warm, generous personality type. But I just I think that that's an ironic way to depict someone who's open-hearted and warm and generous to, hey, you want to come over for a drink with me while I'm pregnant and I'm meeting you for the first time and it's 3.30 a.m. And meanwhile, your wife is still next door, home alone, and and just suffered a murder attempt, you know? Well, he doesn't know that she's uh, next door, right? Because he just got back that day, he got married. He oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's true. I don't true. think that was referenced in the thing, but yeah, I mean... Your initial take, man, and you're so cynical. I know. Well, I just what I was I was looking for the extra layer. Maybe that's something we can talk about. Is that I was trying to figure out why Sharon Tate's in this movie because it's not clear to me what she like her character arc is just hanging out and dancing, like you're saying, dancing alone. (laughs) There's like five scenes of her dancing alone, and then she has a a few lines of dialogue, and that is kind of her whole trajectory. And then she doesn't have anything to do with the, you know, uh, double homicide at the end. And so I just can't figure out a reason why she's there other than just kind of part of the scenery. And I think that is this movie because I really enjoyed this movie on the surface level of just hanging out with these people. Like it was just cool and it was beautifully shot and it was cool to see what Hollywood was like in 1969 with. And it was cool to see Leo and Brad Pitt on screen together. But other than that, it was like, is there much else going on? Uh, not really. Like, uh, I told my lovely wife, Ellie, who went with me, uh, kind of against her will because she's uh, not a big Tarantino head. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I told her after we got out of there, I'm like, I kind of feel like they just, you know, misused or uh, didn't really need Margot Robbie in it. Like, she's this great actress now. You know, she's been nominated. Her. she can do whatever she wants and obviously yeah. she wanted to do a Tarantino film but they didn't really do anything like necessarily with her like you were saying like why is her character even there but I think it's all just it's all to set up the end because if you know anything about what happened and mm-hmm. everything you know that in real life she got murdered and her friends all got murdered including Jay Sebring the, the hairdresser and everything. oh so, he okay 
so we're supposed to like this whole buildup is like okay well she's having a great time and oh man this is going to be really bad and then all of a sudden you know it you just she's there for the twist it's really how it is because it's not yeah it's not really a uh, it's not really a twist or we never even like see her right at all right and then all of a sudden we've been sitting all the time with Brad Pitt and everybody and then all of a sudden like they go next door and kill these people are like well there's no investment because we never actually like saw them or heard them or really thought about them at all well there's no there's no twist though because that scene never happens because the movie ends before they all get murdered well it is a twist because we thought that uh, Tex Watson and the, those hippie chicks are uh are, enough to kill them right all of a sudden the twist is like Oh, not only do they not kill them, they get murdered by Brad Pitt and his dog. <laughs> right. Uh, do you think, because that last um, fight scene, it's, you know, I, to use just the most overused term, vintage Tarantino. Uh, everyone in the theater I was with was most, including me for parts of it, was mostly laughing because it's just so, and obviously that's the kind of reaction that he was trying to instill in the audience. But it also made it so that the there was kind of not any I don't know. I this whole movie after that scene came across as a comedy to me when I thought it was gonna be more of a dramedy. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh it definitely did. Uh, I kind of I'd heard that that it was gonna be the most comedic uh film that he's done. So I was kind of prepared for that and then if you just watch the trailers and stuff, like the tone is really, uh, I mean, I was fully prepared for him to get super dark and, you know, take it in a different direction, but they really prep you for the feeling of the, the film, I think. The trailer's not like, it's not like really a, uh, it's not a, a false promise. I mean, I really feel if you've watched that trailer, you kind of get like, okay, this is what we're in for, and I think we kind of got it. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um <laughs> So that man seeing Leo come out of the tool shed with the uh what is it called the fire the flamethrower flame oh my gosh that was that was really funny I think this is the funny I think that's one thing you can say for this movie totally and it's uh for me in its positive regard is that it's the funniest Tarantino movie I've seen same for us our, our theater was just howling with laughter and it's not like it's it wasn't just the comedy i mean with uh, i mean the comedic violence it was brad pitt's character being high and, yeah oh my gosh some of the lines i mean tarantino he's just the best like when it comes to dialogue man i know your your boy aaron sorkin's out there but <laughs> I, I take tarantino scripts and his his little his little flourishes and everything he does it we got to get into later on. We got to get into some of the lines and some yeah. things because it was amazing. Man, talk about inflation. I don't know wh- how expensive the last acid dip cigarette you paid for was, but 50 cents back in the day, man, those were the times. Yeah. Uh, did people do that? Like just sell them on the side of the street? <laughs> no, no, I'm sure they did that. I'm, I'm saying was acid dip cigarettes a thing? Yeah, I guess so. I kind of like, especially in that era where people are experimenting so much with psychedelics, why why would it not be, you know? Yeah, I guess. I just, 
don't know. Anyway, yeah, I mean, 50 cents, what a, what a great investment. <laughs> yeah. And so I think uh, how incredible that Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio had never been in a scene together before this movie. Just getting those two, only someone like Tarantino can do that. Uh, uh, I was reading somewhere that Brad Pitt famously um, would not work with the Weinsteins after, uh, I guess, Harvey uh, propositioned uh, Gwyneth Paltrow when he was dating her, like back in the 90s. Yeah. And he never forgave him for that, so he never worked with him again until The Glorious Bastards because it was Tarantino. So, like, Tarantino just as this draw. I mean, how else do you get, like, how do you get all these people like Pacino and Margot Robbie? I mean, a lot of these parts aren't that great, but it's like, well, it's Tarantino. I got to do it. Well, yeah, that's how he can pull such a stellar cast. And that's one of the fun parts of watching this movie is that, that, well, what was your favorite cameo? I've, I think I have my favorite, but let me, let me get yours. Or, or like really minor part. Lena Dunham in this. <laughs> Wait, oh, who is she? Oh, uh, when they go to the Spawn Ranch, she's one of the uh, Manson. Oh, right. Yeah. She's okay. the one that tells yeah. uh, tells the girl to, to go get Tex so yeah. that she get Tex can come check out uh, Brad Pitt, make right. sure he's cool. Right, right. Uh, favorite cameo. I mean, you know, I'm a big uh, Timothy Oliphant head, you know, Justified Deadwood. I love sure. I love his work. Um <sighs> I really enjoyed Pacino's character. He wasn't doing, he wasn't going full Pacino. He was pulling back. So that was nice. Um, yeah, he was great. Yeah, he was great. Uh, and I don't know. I, I think I'm probably going to go probably with, I don't know. I love, I love all of, I just love him. I'm, I'm so happy he was in the movie. I, I was kind of bummed. He didn't have like more than two scenes. Yeah. I think my favorite uh, cameo or like really minor part was getting Damian Lewis to play Steve McQueen for a scene. Oh, your boy. That was cool. Well, just, and then I can, and thinking about it later, that's actually a pretty good, um, you know, as far as like casting is just how much he looks like him. Um, but his little story about, uh, Sharon Tate and I think being married to and then divorcing, uh, Jay, you said his name. What's his name? Uh, Sebring. Jay Sebring, and then, um, and then marrying Roman Polanski, and how he's commenting on them, and they're all in the dance floor. I thought that that was just succinct and good, you know, uh, exposition. Yeah, I mean, you gotta whenever you're gonna do exposition, you really gotta be careful on how you do it, and it was it was an entertaining way to you know move the story along. Uh, but how about that wig? I, yeah, I, that I was a tough hang. He, he looked a lot like him, and it was it was brilliant casting. But I think they could have done a better job with that wig. That was yeah, that was weird. <laughs> um, like, they should have got the same. Or I don't know who did the wig, but when they did the um, when Brad Pitt and uh, Bruce Lee, uh, they're doing yeah. that scene. Yeah, and they go to they go to fight, and Brad Pitt takes off his wig. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know he's wearing a wig. They <laughs> yeah. should have got. I think that's what's uh, so I think part of what makes Tarantino movies so funny and why he's so good at comedy when he when he wants to be 
is how um how he edits scenes you know and how sharply he'll kind of like cut from the i guess the the focal point of the comedy scene you know so from from being chewed out and fired to cutting back to Brad Pitt on the roof fixing the uh TV satellite and you realizing that that didn't really happen that that was you know Brad Pitt being like okay yeah that's probably what happened I think, uh, yeah, that was fair. And that, that, no, the hard cut. I mean, totally. I mean, he's he's a master at editing, and he's one of the great ones. But how about the hard cut when uh, they flash back to him on the boat with his wife? You know, when they're telling so the story, good. Yeah, and it, he's just sitting there, and that spear gun is just sitting in his lap, like just totally pointed at her. And we're thinking, oh no, is this going to happen? And then it, they just cut, and then we don't get to see like you know what everyone's talking about. Well, I think that's why um, good editing is it gives you enough, like it puts enough kind of pieces on the table and then cuts away so that it doesn't have to show it. Like, uh, I'm not really putting this very articulately, but I think of how uh, No Country for Old Men and the last kind of murder that uh, Sugar does of um, Josh Brolin's wife you know, in the, in the scene and it, it cuts away from when they're talking and then he wipes his feet on the doorstep, you know, like that editing is just, is brilliant. But, um, okay. So I, I told you that we would kind of rank Tarantino's nine movies and then we could, we could put this in, in his, uh, nine feature films. So why don't we go, should we go nine to one? Should we go that way? Okay, let's do it. Uh, number nine, I had Kill Bill Volume Two. Wow, Eddie, coming in hot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I got to uh, well, why why that's okay, controversial. Go well, forward. yeah, I mean, I, these are all good movies, actually. There's uh-huh. there's not any any of these nine movies, I would I would be fine going over to a friend's house and they'd be like, oh, we're rewatching. Jackie Brown or Kill Bill Volume 1. I'd be like, okay, that's fine. That'll be fun, you know? And that's a pretty strong... There's just so very few directors that you can say that with, and I think that's part of why Tarantino's regarded so highly, you know? So what's your number nine? Oh, I mean, it's got to be a Death Proof. Oh, see, I didn't include... I just included the, the nine that he, I guess, claims is his nine. He's kind of written and directed solely by... Oh really? I thought that was one of the nine. Uh, I mean, you might be right, but I have basically the 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 nine, not in any order, not to spoil the the order that I put them in. So this is out of order. But the nine that I listed are uh, Hateful Eight, The Two Kill Bills, Jackie Brown, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Reservoir Dogs, Django, Pulp Fiction, and Glorious Bastards. Okay, I got it. All right. Well, uh, yeah. If we're not counting that one, then definitely. Um, I'm going with Hateful Eight. Played, mm. like you know me, big Western head. When he said he was going to do, well, obviously Django was essentially a Western. He called it a, his Southern, but it's a Western. Yeah. So, you know, when he said he was going to follow that up with another Western, I'm like, all right, this is this is too good. I'm why do I get all these blessings? You know, blah blah blah. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, I mean, I'm not saying it was a bad film, 
or anything like that, I think you, you nail it on the head when, at the end of the day, it's Tarantino, and everything he does is very well thought out and well done, and he gets he collects a lot of talent. He's able to find people to play these characters, but, I mean, the movie was kind of a drag. It was Sorry. baggy. It could have it could have been an hour shorter. Easily. I mean, it was fat. So fat. And also, that movie has a good cast, but if he had gone all out on the cast he did for Hateful Eight, like he did for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think that movie becomes way more enjoyable. But, yeah. Anyways. Oh, absolutely. I I mean, you, you know, justified reference that earlier. I love Walter Groggins, but... Walter Groggins and Kurt Russell cannot carry a film. I'm sorry, there's no, there's no, no film that they can no, carry. Absolutely not. Uh, my number eight was Kill Bill Volume 1. Oh, you just hate the Kill Bills. Yeah, I don't know. They're just... If I think... I feel like they don't have a ton for me there in terms of like dialogue or narratively. But they're they're... I would definitely watch Kill Bill like on mute like the some of the visuals and the fight scenes are are really cool yeah no i'm with you i mean there's uh he gets really uh, you know he gets very tarantino out there between you know just all the he gets to do all of his um uh, kung fu references all his great um you know uh, asian film kurosawa uh, and, yeah, yeah he gets to do all that and I mean, obviously he enjoys it, but yeah, there's there's some uh, those are not flawless movies. You're you're right on that. The way I think about the Kill Bills is that he just had to get it out of his system. So he had to he had to get out of his system twice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, he had to, he had to get it out of his system because Netflix hadn't been invented yet, and he couldn't just do a miniseries. So he had to make two yeah. movies. That that would have been a great miniseries. For oh, sure. it would have been it would have been great. Uh, what what was your number eight? series um volume two um, okay. for me was yeah it's a uh, it's not great uh, it's got its it's got its moments for sure but i mean we're looking at a an incredible list and you gotta put that down there that's uh that's just just above hateful eight but uh, a lot of issues there yeah so hateful eight was my number seven um so we're kind of tracking in that the bottom of our lists include one of the Kill Bills and Hateful Eight, you know? Yeah, essentially. Um, what was your seven? Oh, uh, seven for me. I mean, it's going to be kind of controversial, but not a big fan of Jackie Brown. Yeah, that was, well, I won't spoil where it was, but yeah, I understand. I mean, you know, uh, again, there's some great scenes. You got my boy, uh, De Niro, in it. Uh, they're throwing, uh, Chris Tucker and Trunk. I mean, that's great. <laughs> yeah, Sam Jackson's doing Sam Jackson things, and uh, it has these it has these moments. And you really, really appreciate it, and it's a good film. It's a good film. Might be a great film, but it doesn't. When you come to listing it out, it doesn't resonate for me like the the ones that we're going to talk about later on our list. Yeah, I don't. There's something off to me about Jackie Brown. Um... And I, I, it's kind of hard to put my finger on it. Like the heist is a little too mechanical, in a way that, in a way that um, Logan Lucky was. 
where it's just it becomes a little too much about the mechanics and not about I don't know the people involved and how you know the I don't know how people are reacting to the kind of multiple betrayals that are kind of going on at the same time. I think it's I think it's the most Michael Keaton role I've ever seen. <laughs> Him just like chewing gum and being part of the FBI and telling people what to like as so Michael Keaton. But yeah, I almost think it would have been better if Sam Jackson wasn't in the movie and the Sam Jackson role and the De Niro role were just played by De Niro, that that was just one thing. Because Samuel Jackson, I think this was coming off Pulp Fiction, right? He went Pulp Fiction to Jackie Brown? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. This so was his big follow-up to that. That was just hard because uh, Jules in Pulp Fiction is one of the greatest on-screen characters we've ever seen. So to bring Samuel Jack- L. Jackson back also as another gangster character in this, it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, but Jules, man, that was like the best written character ever. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're Sam Jackson, you're you're definitely saying yes to whatever he offers you after yeah. that. But it's yeah, it's a it's a good thing that uh, you know that wasn't it for him. He obviously became a huge superstar, and everything. But it's a good thing that he didn't just keep playing this role over and over again. Yeah, the the jewels sort of role. Yeah. So so Jackie Brown was my number six. What was your number six? Number six for me uh, is coming in at uh, Kill Bill Volume One. Okay. Uh, uh, definitely superior to Volume Two, in my opinion. Uh, we get to meet the characters for the first time, most of them anyway. And uh, yeah, just uh, that has the fight scene where she kills like 150 ninjas, right? Oh, um, the crazy 88s. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, but especially when it goes, cause I think it's also part of that scene where it kind of ends and, and she's fighting like seven of them and it's a big, like just against a big blue or red backdrop or something. And I can't remember why there's even that, but it kind of doesn't matter. It just looks really cool to watch their silhouettes against that. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's all everything with Tarantino is visual. It doesn't matter. Like, well, that's how it's going to look. So <laughs> yeah. <go. laughs> Yeah. No. Yeah. I I definitely have sympathy for for that. Maybe. Um. I mean. Yeah. I mean, the more I think about it, if I were to rewatch him, that might that might I might swap Jackie Brown in that one. But um. Cool. Okay. So number five, I had at Reservoir Dogs. Number five. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Reservoir Dogs. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to really understand how much that movie meant. Like. You know, because we've seen it ripped off so many times. And yeah. I guess technically he ripped it off from somebody else. I forget the film that he copied it, but the interwebs say that it's basically like the exact film just redone. So, <laughs> it, but it, it's hard to, once people saw Reservoir Dogs, uh, it was hard to like, it, you could have put the genie back in the bottle after that. Like everybody wanted to make their reser- Reservoir Dogs. I mean, it was a seminal film. It like, if you're talking about just if you're talking about impact and everything I think that's at the top of the list even more than Pulp Fiction Yeah, uh, maybe Pulp Fiction you could argue but I mean after everyone did, after everyone saw Rest for Dogs they, they wanted to do their own Rest for Dogs just amazing film I think a lot of times with people that are the best at what they do like Tarantino is um, 
you can see this kind of continuity between their entire uh, career. And so to see him in some ways so just uh, developed in his techniques so young with his first film, that that first movie kind of has everything. Like it has the Tarantino dialogue. It has the, you know, crazy violence at the end. It has uh, just the twist. Um, it has the creative use of music and music almost being like a character. Like music is always kind of a character in Tarantino's movies. So it's kind of all there. Um, what was your number five? Um, pains me to say, but it's Jenko. Oh, okay. Yeah, Django Unchained. I mean, talk about, you know, if you could just... Okay, love Tarantino, obviously, but, man, he really gets in his own way sometimes. And that last, like, I don't know what it is, 45 minutes of the film was just... That was really tough. Like, the, the beginning, I think Django would probably be, like, one or two for me if if it was like just the first whatever it is two hours of the film and then you kind of it just kind of ended with good ending would have rocked it but i mean man he really he really gets into his own impulses sometimes and like basically from the time he shows up on screen as an australian like through the end when you know basically django just he burns down the plantation and then he does a moonwalk on his horse. I mean, it was really tough to watch. You could have had the scene where Django shoots the 30 slave owner guys. You could have had that scene a half hour earlier or 45 minutes earlier and called it a day. And that would have been great. Yeah. Um, A lot of ways to end it, a lot of better ways to end it for sure. And I know, that if he ever listened to this podcast, he'd just be screaming at us right now. But I'm sorry, man. That, that was really tough. No, no, no. You you uh, you kill off Christoph Waltz, and then that's when Django shoots the place up. Movie done. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe if his films, if every single one is turned down a little bit, we get a better film, and he's able to give us more frequent films uh, than everybody wins. I think this is part of the problem is that... Uh, Tarantino, it's clear he, I mean, it's clear he's a genius and that he's one of the greatest American film directors ever. And so no one really denies that, even people that don't like him. However, however, I think it's a problem when the artist believes their own hype, you know, and doesn't know. And then you get hateful eight. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh... So Django was your five. Okay, my four was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. Um, uh, what, what, which what brought this? What what brought this above the others and not quite to the elite category for you? Yeah, that's really well said because I actually drew a line after three, and and kind of like lumped four through nine together, and then one through three are kind of their own echelon for me. Uh, But, yeah, what put it above the others is just the strength of their performances. I think it's just that cast. Seeing that cast together was just magic. Um, And everyone 
everyone crushed it in their performances, except for, I mean, this is like little nitpicky things, but Kurt Russell's wife, I looked up afterward because I was just curious, or, or I think there's a YouTube video that popped up and I recognized her from it. She's a stunt coordinator that they gave her a part. So she's not an actor. And I think you could see it. No disrespect to her, but I think it kind of came across in that scene <laughs> where she's chewing out Brad Pitt. Um, so, but all that to say, the strength of the performances, uh, I think put that above everything else. And, and just seeing, I would, if at the end of that two hour and 45 minute movie, they were like, hey, there's just B-roll for three hours of more Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt hanging out, cruising through uh, down Hollywood Boulevard in a catalog. Do you want to stick around? I'd be like, uh, sure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I mean, can't get enough of that, that combo. It's, uh, I mean, for me, it's pretty up there. It's not, you know, it's not like Paul Newman and Redford and Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, but, uh, man, those guys at chemistry it was really, really good, and those guys really chewed up the scenes. I mean, they were amazing, for sure. It's something that The Ringer, I think, points out frequently, or if, you know, if not, this is the first place I heard it. But they pointed out how Brad Pitt's not a leading man, and I think that having him not have to carry this movie just brings out all the best parts of Brad Pitt, you know? Yeah, I mean, we'll get into it in Glorious when we get to it, but, I mean, he's the biggest star, like, you know, in building and stuff, but he's not necessarily, it's definitely an ensemble cast, and they have the different storylines going on, so he's not, like, a traditional, like, lead in that, and that's, like, that might, I think that's my favorite performance of, of his. It's, uh, yeah. it's just what he's able to do with it, that accent and uh, some of the... Uh, stuff and then being in, just getting into Tarantino's script for the first time that's amazing no one else sure. could yeah no one else could pull it off what was your number four number four uh, is also this film um, oh okay this, so okay yeah wow all right cool I I absolutely love this film this film is great uh, we're in a oh man we're just in a landscape of Marvel movies and yeah um, it's it's pretty tough. Um, just kind of landscape work. There, there's good films coming out, but I mean to have this this film is such such a breath of fresh air. I mean, I don't really go to the the movies hardly anymore. I just wait for it mostly because now I have to get a babysitter and yeah. do all that. But you know, when I heard about this, and especially after I saw the when the trailer dropped, I'm like, okay, this is appointment viewing. I'm there open. And I can't remember the last time that it was like, maybe it was, I guess it was probably Dunkirk um, mm. when that came out, when I was just like, okay, I need to see this weekend or whatever. Um, this is just, and they brought it. I mean, they, they really did. It wasn't his best film, as we'll get into, but that, that I mean, now that Daniel Day Lewis is retired, and I think. Believe him? Do you believe him? I forget. Uh, I I hope it's not true, but I actually do believe him. I actually do believe that he thinks that he is retired and that it it 
the only way he comes back is a Herculean effort by Paul Thomas Anderson or like the perfect script, you know? So yeah, I believe him. I believe him too. I, I'm bummed, but I believe him. So with that knowledge, I think Leo is the king. Uh, apologies to you. All our other favorites, you know, Michael Fassbender, Christian Bale, uh, whoever you want to throw on that list. Leo's the king, and that performance, oh my gosh, he's just, he was incredible. Uh, He crushes it. Yeah, he's great. Brad Pitt, like you said, he's he's much better as a supporting character or in an ensemble, like whether it's, you know, just being being fun, eating in Ocean's Eleven, you know, walking around, just kind of doing Brad Pitt things, you know. He's great in that, and having Leo kind of be the more the lead. I mean, I think they probably got like equal screen time, but you really felt like Leo was, uh, you know, he was carrying a what they say in the film. He was uh, Brad Pitt was just helping him carry his load. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, my number three was Django, um, which you know we pretty much talk about. It could have been the best movie of the last. 15 years, but yeah, it kind of got bogged down by its own baggage. But, um, man, that first hour and a half, unreal. What was your number three? Uh, number three, uh, Reservoir Dogs. Okay, yeah. I, uh, I mean, obviously the, uh, I love, I love the, uh, the actors ensemble of, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood and everything, and you know maybe obviously where this is all fresh. We just saw this this weekend. You know maybe further down the line, we, uh, we're gonna in our lifetimes we're gonna probably watch this movie. I would think probably like ten more times. Sure. So you know, but right now, I mean, Reservoir Dogs, what they did, and just context. I mean, what there was before Reservoir Dogs and what it it did and everything. Reservoir Dogs doesn't. It's only third on my list because the casting, you know, they made it for $3 million. He wasn't Tarantino. He just, he had to work with what he got. I I thought some the actors weren't that great. And some of them were fantastic. But, like, if he could have done Reservoir Dogs with whoever he wanted, which is kind of what he did with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I mean, that would just would have been amazing. And that would have probably made it my favorite film. But that aside, it's just, it's incredible. But still, you get you get a great Tim Roth performance. You get a great Harper Keitel. You get a great Bashimi. Yeah, well, you referenced uh, you referenced The Ringer, and I was listening to their. They just did a great rewatchables on uh, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, and they pointed out Tim Roth uh, trying to do an American accent is uh, it's a little tough in some some places, and I remember that it's like okay, great performance, <laughs> but not great accent. Maybe after he and Tarantino became best friends and he put him in Pulp Fiction, he's like, ah, it's okay, just be British. We won't explain it. <laughs> yeah, it, he's like, all right, I, I want to run you back. You were great, I loved it, but um, no accent. How about that? No accent. <laughs> it's like, great, thank great, you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I haven't seen Reservoir Dogs in a long time. I It could be that that's suffering from a lack of recency bias, like maybe if I'd seen it fresher, I I would realize, I mean, there is, there's, there's some just all time cinematic moments from Reservoir Dogs, which, you know, kind of goes to what you're saying about it being so influential. Like when he's, they put on, you'll remember the song, but they put on the song 
and the guy's dancing and then lights him on fire. Yeah, stuck in, or, uh, yeah, that Sealy Dan song. Yeah, that was a yeah. pretty incredible moment. Um, my number two, right? We only have two left. Yeah, we got two. Yeah, my number two is Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, at this point, we probably, I mean, it's obvious what's the number one. But Pulp Fiction, I feel like everything that could be said about Pulp Fiction has been said. I mean, it's uh, the monologue of Samuel L. Jackson quoting Ezekiel before he kills the dude. Um, I just, like, th- that whole, every part of that movie is just picture perfect except for tarantino's (laughs) acting performance but um i don't know i just i'm almost at a loss for words in terms of how pulp fiction both influenced culture and how good of a movie it is and just uh i don't know it's it's it just feels so self-evident to me you know absolutely i mean it's my number two as well uh it's just it's fantastic um and yeah, Jimmy is definitely the, the weak part of uh, Pulp Fiction. Jimmy. I just yeah. I just think I think what elevates Pulp Fiction to me isn't necessarily the the structure of it or any particular scene or you know, obviously the dialogue is great, but there's something about Jules' dialogue and the performance that Samuel Jackson gave that Jules kind of elevates that movie for me. Not single-handedly, but almost single-handedly, in a way that he's funny. There's like a natural kind of um, uh, real transformation for him. There's uh, you see kind of like the evil aspects of him, the the, and then you see the redemptive aspects of him, and the fact that his wallet says "badass motherfucker." And just every, all these little details just pile up. The shirt that he's wearing in the diner at the end, you know? I just... Yeah, UC Santa Barbara. Uh, yeah. The banana slugs. Or, or, Ulta, yeah. yeah. You look like a tork. <laughs> yeah, just... It's... Uh, it's just... It's such a fun movie. Um, hey, our, can we take a uh, commercial break? Yes. Pause. And uh, get... Uh, back to uh, number one because I rewatched number one actually last night it's on Netflix everyone should check it out um, Glorious Bastards and I got some thoughts and they're all great but uh, we need to continue this after the commercial okay So, number one, um, I don't think this is spoiling anything to say that both of our number one is Inglorious Bastards. I mean, we are brothers, and <laughs> we do have similar views on the world, but there's really no debate. I mean, this is a masterpiece, and we know it's a masterpiece because, what was the final line? This, I'd, I'd have to say this, but my masterpiece is <laughs> Kentucky accent, man. Is it Kentucky? No, it's like, what is it, like West Virginia? Um, yeah, so he's a descendant of Jim Bridger, which means he has a little engine in him, apparently. And, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I, I guess 
had, uh, I think it's more of a Tennessee accent. Tennessee, um, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, he's from the Smoky Mountains, which is Tennessee. Okay. Um, man. So there was a split, like, you know, at the end of the day, I'm going to choose Inglorious Bastards every time over Pulp Fiction. But there was a split second where I thought maybe Pulp Fiction, just because of the amount of culture it's kind of shaped and touched and some of those Jules monologues and stuff. But I mean, yeah, this is our list. This is our list, yeah. What's true to us? I know. (laughs) Uh, Inglorious Bastards has... Well, first of all, I... um, We... I taught a module on... uh, screenwriting that was just it was just one week to to my students in Swansea and it was part of just like a writing styles course basically just introduction to all these different kind of genres of writing and when it came to screenwriting I just played for my students the first like 12-15 minutes of Inglorious Bastards and I was like here's how you write a scene guys like and then we looked at the screenplay and just tried to diagnose why that interrogation scene is such incredibly just like visceral um, writing intention and how he builds that. Um, I think part of the reason that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, I'm this is still an Inglourious Bastards point, so I'm bringing it back there. But I think part of the reason why the newest uh, Tarantino movie didn't land for me with the same um, kind of just memorable punch that uh, his two other recent movies did, uh, Django and Inglourious Bastards was partly the Christoph Waltz energy or type of character. I'm not saying that Christoph Waltz, that would have made Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a better movie, but I just, he's electrifying every time he's kind of on the screen in Inglourious Bastards, and he's on the screen a lot, you know? I mean, famously, uh, Tarantino, he said he could not have made this. He, he thought his movie was lost, he found Christoph Waltz to play the character because he didn't think anybody could play it. Like he has to, you have to have find that actor that's seamless in English, German, and French, and Italian. I mean, uh, he had to find that person, and he felt like he couldn't fake it. And I mean, he sure found it because Christoph Waltz, I mean, man, what an incredible performance! He's he's terrifying, but he's also charming. This, he's that, the other. I mean, that opening scene is one of the all-time greatest opening scenes. And then when you include, uh, you know, the uh, the basement bar scene, um, those are two of, I got to think, probably the best five scenes in the last, like, 20 years in the same movie, like, filmed any movie in the last 20 years. It's just, it's incredible. Yeah, it's unreal. Um, I think that... There's also, I mean, to, to like one more note about Waltz is just that the scene where he basically outs uh, Brad Pitt, the Gorlami scene, and the way that uh, Waltz uh, like plays that for laughs in the scene, it's just, it's just masterful. Um, I mean. I don't feel like there's a down scene in that entire movie too, which is also really hard to do because I feel like there's down scenes in all of other Tarantino's movies. So I think there's a pace to Inglourious Bastards where there's not a part where I want to go in the kitchen and come back, you know? Like there's not a real missable part. 
Yeah, I, I'm with you, and I'm not saying this is down or anything. I think it's actually great. Uh, I, uh, you know, Shoshana's um, admirer, the, uh, the star of the film. Oh, yeah. Daniel yeah. Brule's character. Brule's character, exactly. He, like, he's, he does a great job, but he just creeps me out so much that I have a hard time, like, sometimes, like, staying with it because he is just, mm, he is so, like, over the top. It's pretty funny. Yeah, I think he's just charming enough to kind of pull off not, like, a total, like, how Goebbels is in the movie, you know? Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, point taken. Um, I don't know, man. There's kind of, there's not a ton of movies that I can think of where if you, you know, took a, uh, just a, a still from any scene in the movie, it would make a good poster. <laughs> like, that's a, that's a weird kind of, uh, way to classify a, a greatness when it comes to film. But there is something to just the cinematic grandeur of Inglourious Bastards where it's bold and unabashed and, you know, really reveling in the medium. Like that story suffers if it's any other medium, if it's a play or if it's a book or if it's like it was meant to be in a movie in a way that most stories could, you know, be different genres but for that it had to be filmed i don't know i mean you don't think that uh you don't think perhaps indulged in a different way it's going to be a a fantastic uh, novel or something yeah not in the same way because for me it's so much like the color and the framing and yeah i really think that I think, and it goes back to why it's a crazy notion that Tarantino would give up filmmaking to write books or do plays because it's he has such a visual aesthetic. So I don't know. I just it, his movies make sense to me um, in a way, like on screen, that they don't they wouldn't make sense to me written, if that makes any sense at all. I don't know. Because so many people, so many directors, so many artists are, um, you know, so centralized, or at least what they're able, what they excel at is very specific. And then they kind of fill in the margins around that. And they're still incredible artists. Uh, But the fact that he's simultaneously one of, if not the best, uh, dialogue writers, we'll say screenwriters, and then also visually one of the most impressive creative uh, visual artists in this medium is is insane and that's why you know he just he's one of the best ever is because he's able to do these two very different things at almost an all-time like level it's insane yeah he's the man so did you want to to wrap up did you want to talk uh, so about some of your favorite lines from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I think we have to. I think, um, so, this was, I think you'll agree, this was the most uh, comedic turn that he's ever taken in a film. Yeah. Um, 
just the the tone. I, I know we covered it earlier and all that, but these last 15 or 20 minutes, I don't know exactly how long it was from the time that Leo came out with his uh, blender full of uh, margarita, just like berating the dirty hippies, yeah. all the way to the end when he's uh, basically uh, giving um, Jay Sebring or Emil Hirsch um, the rundown of what happened is just like the theater I was in was just like, <laughs> it was erupting in laughter. Uh, yeah. I wanted to I wanted to just run down with you some of these things because some of I mean it's just Tarantino at best writing. Um, so when the car comes up and it's just kind of humming there and you know it's just kind of sputtering they don't know what they're gonna do exactly and then Leo or Rick Dalton comes over and he just he opens the window and he's like oh man the property taxes I pay it's <laughs> so perfect like that's exactly what that person would say you say something about the property taxes <laughs> oh man the flourishes, the flourishes yeah the are incredible. I think that's what makes really good uh, comedic movies like uh, Big Lebowski comes to mind where one of the reasons why that movie is so funny and so good and so rewarding upon rewatching is because there's the little details that add that are just like a chuckle in and of themselves. Like when the dirty hippies car backs all the way down the driveway and their muffler is so broken that it just leaves a cloud all the way down the driveway. Uh, that was funny. Uh, that was great. And then just like his, <laughs> Oh man. And then when they get in the, uh, the Mexican standoff, um, yeah. And, uh, the three of them are like surrounding uh, Tarantino, classic Tarantino, just got to have a Mexican standoff. Of course. And they're just surrounding him. And obviously Brad Pitt has uh, smoked his, uh, his Aspen do cigarette and he's standing there. He's trying to like process what's happening exactly. And then he realizes that he recognizes them. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, what, what's your, what's your name? He's like, and then Tex Watson I'm the devil. I'm here to do the devil's work. And it's just perfect pause and timing. And he's like, nah, it was way dumber than that. <laughs> yeah. Rex? And then one of the girls is like, Tex, you shoot him or something like that. He's like, Tex, that's right. You were on a horsey. Yeah, it's such a McConaughey moment. It is. It, I felt like McConaughey could have been in that role at that time. Yeah, just, <laughs> just standing in for that five-minute scene. And, uh... Yeah, when his Italian wife like punches the gal with the knife, like that got a big laugh. Just you know, the how she's somehow still alive after getting mauled by the dog, and then he comes out. You know, as we were mentioning earlier with the flamethrower, I just there's a lot of. I think in some ways, like a lot of Tarantino's movies, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is very elliptical in the way that. There's a lot of foreshadowing. There's a lot of, you know, kind of things that happen in the beginning, recur in the end. So you have the flamethrower that Leo uses in the Nazi movie that he's in, and then he's using it in real life. Or, you know, the dog. To me, the first scene the dog I was in, I was like, that was that's an unruly large animal, you know? And... I think in the back of my mind, I was like, is that dog going to maul someone? But it, I didn't think about it at all consciously. 
And then at the end, you're like, oh, yeah, of course. That's why that dog was a huge pit bull from the first frame, you know? Was that dog on steroids? That dog was like... Unbelievably just like compact, like compact, but huge. (laughs) Um, This dog is out there and he's just hanging out in this trailer like all the time. How how is he getting his exercise exactly to look like that? I don't know. Maybe he maybe he uses a... uh, Brad Pitt's bench press that he had right next to his trailer. Oh, that's true. I, I guess <laughs> we keep saying he, but it's, uh, her name was actually Brandy. Brandy, of course, yeah. yeah. So, but Brandy was jacked, and uh, she was really there for the time. How about? I think. I mean, there were some great moments in the lead up and stuff, but the movie really turned in the last fifteen minutes in, in tone. It felt like it was just like, in not a bad way, but. Yeah, there was definitely some lighter stuff. I mean, you know, Brad Pitt's throwing Bruce Lee into the car. That was a that was a great. Um, oh, loved it. Yeah, that was a great one. But like, just at the end when he's debriefing, and he's like, he's like, "Oh, are you guys okay? Oh, yeah, we're all okay. Those fucking hippies are." Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he has like a good chuckle. Yeah. I um yeah I think for this movie what makes it so funny is more. The I think it's more situational comedy. It's the circumstances that these characters kind of find themselves in and like the weird things they come across more than one liners. Like I would almost argue Inglourious Bastards has better just one lighters that are comedic. But this movie is funnier in terms of uh, more consistently just really absurd, funny situations, you know? serious fashion even though you know we get we get the comedic violence that he's been known for i mean it's hard even before this i think was a little bit more absurd the way you just kept uh brad pitt's character just kept bashing people's heads in uh it was played like even more absurd than he does but his his violence has always been you know much more over the top and everything but yeah the characters were like were really like played for it almost, I'm, I'm not gonna say this like it's a comparison, but it it almost had like sort of a feeling of uh, the Coen Brothers like sort of comedy. In I, I would love a double feature of Big Lebowski, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, that's kind of how it was. It, it it did not feel like the characters were Tarantino, Tarantino serious like a normal series for him. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that from hearing him talk about this movie, I think that he, the more he thought about the characters and the more he thought about the people he wanted to cast as these characters. And the more that became a reality, I think he just wanted to hang out in this world with these people and have a good time. I think that's at the end of the day, that's what this movie is. It's like a really good time at the movies or, um, you know, with your friends, I don't, I don't think it's meant to be kind of, uh, struggled over in college film classes in 20 years, you know? No, absolutely. Um, are we concerned at all about these sort of revelatory kind of, it seems like not with him, but with other, uh, big, big films, recent years it's kind of like uh, sort of celebrating the the magic of Hollywood like 
Hollywood or movies can overcome anything. And what we have here, the Oscars montage. Yeah. The, the, the actors in this film are the heroes and they're the ones that can, uh, they're, they're, they're a little dopey or whatever, but at the end of the day, they're the heroes and they can, you know, Brad Pitt and Cliff, they can, uh, overcome anything. Uh, and there's a celebration of them as the heroes. Is there, is there anything there as far as, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, is there anything to be concerned about with that or is this just a one-off for him? Oh, you mean Tarantino touching on these types of themes again in the future? Yeah. Oh, I think it's a one-off. But then again, I never expected him to do it at all, so I could be totally wrong. I, I'm i really glad you touched on that, because that's part of the reason... Well, that's part of the reason I have a little bit of mixed feelings about this movie, is that it's so self-congratulatory in a way that La La Land is. And... In La La Land, I was thinking, uh, you know, do you remember the uh, the artist that silent film that one? I never watched that. I didn't even. Uh, yeah. It was. I mean, it was a good film overall. Like it wasn't trash or anything, but it was. Uh, sure. The message was a little tough to digest in retrospect. Yeah, I. I think I was looking. I mean, it goes back to you know how I how I was so hard on this movie in the start of this conversation. I think when I look for movies about Hollywood, I'm kind of more expecting or more interested or, or wanting the kind of David Lynch, Mulholland drive commentary. That's not to mean that every movie about Hollywood has to just (sighs) dismantle the, the, the kind of Hollywood myth and show it for its just, like, glitzy vanity. But I do want a little bit of more self-awareness, I think, when it comes to to the type of culture that is such a bubble when it comes to these uh, types of places, you know? Yeah, I mean, there must have been, like, sort of... Because there was definitely a long a long uh, lineage of these films or shows or whatever that were trying to to bust our our concept of Hollywood, you know, for a long period of time. Like, oh no, this is this is fake. These people are, you know, they're they're crass, they're greedy, they're artificial. Um, and now it feels like it's kind of it's swung back the other way. Like, oh no, these people are artists. They're doing their best to entertain you, and they're, you know, everything. Basically, uh, the tone has shifted, and I'm wondering if, if this film, what he what he brought to it, is uh, falls in that, or it's just kind of like this is just something I wanted to do one time, and it's not part of a, a trend or anything that we've already seen. You know? Yeah, I'm. I think too highly of Tarantino to think it's going to become a trend, but but then again, I think too highly of him to also take him seriously about <laughs> 10 movies and maybe, and maybe it's, I don't know, time to start rethinking of how we think about Tarantino. Who knows? He's now, he's on a run, uh, four straight movies now. Well, yeah, four straight movies. 
were that have all been set in the past, like in different time periods. You had Inglorious Bastards. That's you know the 1940s. You got Django and Hateful Eight and this movie. They're all set in previous time periods. Do you think his next film continues with that, or is he going to come back to the modern day like Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction, or like he's going to have something set in the time that we're in? I kind of think he's going to keep going back to the past for some reason. And that could just be because that's the well he's drawn from recently. But I was thinking in this movie a little bit, you know, if if I was really pressed to come up with something that was a little bit under the surface on this movie, if there was a little bit something more, maybe you can make the case that this is another um, something we've talked about before, but this idea of Tarantino kind of counterfactual uh, narrative of history, um, taking these kind of big historical events and, and warping them in a way that's more cathartic for people where the, you know, the victims become the, the heroes and, you know, the atrocities are committed upon the perpetrators and um, that kind of thing. So I think maybe this could be looked at in one lens as a continuation of those types of movies with uh, it kind of being a trilogy, I guess you could say, with Django and Bastards in this. But I think it's a bit of a stretch to to actually, you know, think of that as the same kind of con- uh, continual thread. But I don't know. What do you think? Well, if that was a thread, you would have thought that he would have continued that with Hateful Eight. But it's not the case. It's like he took a, he took a break and then came back. I kind of right. think Hateful Eight was a break on a number of fronts. Like if, if this had come out when hateful eight came out, you'd be, we'd all be saying what an incredible one, two, three, you know? And now we have to kind of make a caveat. I mean, we definitely made a caveat on our list. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, shoot, man. Well, Hey, thanks for coming on the pod. This was absolutely delightful. And, um, I whenever I get so nervous whenever we have a guest on because I feel like uh, when it just goes back to me and Morgan they're gonna be like why are we listening to just these two guys again? <laughs> oh no, uh, you guys are great, um, and I mean the only reason that you should be nervous is because you know you get away from the formula and then the listeners are like oh what what is this what is this yeah no that's not what I mean. Well, um, hey, mark your calendar for uh, 2021 uh, summer for when you're going to come back on the pod and we're going to be talking about Quentin Tarantino's 10th and final feature, Star Trek, The the Last Beyond, (laughs) co-directed with J.J. Abrams. Yeah, 